This is the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Landon. Very happy to have with me Layla Carey. Layla Carey is the editor of The Current in Fishers, a weekly publication. It's been around for a long time, uh, and I'm just curious uh, – how long have you been editor now that uh, Current and Fish? You also do Lawrence. I'll talk about that later. But uh, how long have you been the editor there? Um, it's uh, almost exactly a year. It'll be uh, a year uh, in March. I was so. thinking it was right about a year, so yep. I wasn't too far off on that. Talk a little bit uh, about your professional career before you came to Fishers. Oh, my. Um, all right. So I uh, I graduated from Indiana University in, I believe it was 96. Um, it was a long time ago. And uh, I had a degree in journalism. And uh, But I don't know if you recall, but that, there was a recession during that time. Oh, I do remember oh, that. Yes. <laughs> and um, it was challenging for me to find a job in journalism. So I moved home. At that time, my parents were living in Toledo. And, uh, and I got a job at a frames shop. I was framing art, which was actually a really fun job. <laughs> but... It, and, and compared to journalism, it's uh, a little different. It's a little different, yes. But uh, it was it was fun. It was a, actually a nice gap year, almost in between graduating and starting my actual career, which I was able to find a job at a tiny weekly in Montpelier, Ohio, which mm. is where my grandmother's or my mother's family is from. So my grandmother, and my great grandmother, lived there along with aunts and uncles and cousins. And was it a weekly or a daily? Tiny weekly, you very know, I, small. I, I love to tell this story. But my parents grew up in a little town called Lagodi in mm-hmm. southwest Indiana. Uh, and the reason I mention that is that the Lagodi Tribune was a weekly that began publication the year after the Civil War mm. ended, like 1866. And three years ago, it ceased publication. Just couldn't make it in this uh That's a long run, though. But my dad subscribed to that. We had we got the Lagodi Tribune every week and it was the typical small town paper. This person had a T. This person did this. Mm-hmm. I got my first radio job. He got it on the front page because <laughs> it wasn't much news. <laughs> there were lots of they had the format where they had tons of stories on the front page, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. My uncle who uh has passed away even years ago, but he was is a funny guy, but he, he wrote very strange letters. He wrote a letter to the Lagodi Tribune while he was living uh, in Arizona, and they printed the entire letter, and it took up a whole page of the newspaper. That's the kind of newspaper Lagodi Tribune was. So you talk about weeklies. Weeklies are just very special kinds of publications, and the, the sad part for me is so many of them have gone down the drain in the last few years. We can talk more about that later, but... One thing happened, the first time you and I had a chance to, to sit down and talk, uh, we bonded right away because we're both ex-radio people. Right. And uh, before you came to Fishers, you worked for public radio in Alaska. Yep. So uh, the journey there, so from the weekly newspaper in Montpelier, Ohio, um, I, I had an opportunity to move to Alaska and work for a daily newspaper in Ketchikan, Alaska, mm. which is in the southeastern part of the state. Anybody who's taken a cruise has most likely stopped in Ketchikan. So, um, and I worked at the the newspaper for quite a few years before moving over to public radio and becoming the news director at KRBD-FM. Is that Anchorage? 
No, that's in Ketchikan. Oh, it's in Ketchikan. Yes, oh. they have their own small oh. public radio station. There's actually mm. a, a number of, that's not even the smallest one in Alaska. There's really? quite a few small public radio stations in Alaska, and um, each one is uh, supported by their community as well as by um, a certain amount of funds from the uh, public broadcasting. So, Well, that's interesting because even in Indiana, uh, you know, the public radio, TV and radio stations tend to work together and, and, and produce programming that they all use. Sure. So I'm sure there was a lot of that in the last. Hard to fill a there whole was, broadcast day in a small sure. town. Yeah, there was um, a lot of content sharing. Um, the station in Anchorage had a daily news broadcast where it compiled news from around the state because it's a really big state. And, yeah, geographically, uh, <laughs> it's huge. It's yeah. very large. Um, and then our local broadcast, our daily local broadcast, was about 15 minutes long. Mm-hmm. So, and that was in addition to morning talk show type stuff, which uh, you're very familiar with. Yes, I did my share of that. I mean, I, I it's it, well, I have a lot of stories I can tell you about talk shows. Uh, I won't get into all that. <laughs> and I, that kind of dovetails into something. And I want to publicly thank you for doing a very nice story oh, on sure. me. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a cover story done on me anywhere. <laughs> You're and, a good uh, subject. Well, I didn't know you were going to put me on the cover. I guess I should have asked. And then That's so- why I took the good photo of you. <laughs> That's right. You did. And, and good pictures of me are difficult to find. But uh, And just because I'm not particularly photogenic. Ah, uh, uh, you did great. Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, why, I have to really ask you this question. I'm just – I've written a little news blog for 13 years – but why me? Um, it's your contribution to the community. Because, I mean, what we do is we cover the community, which you do as well. And um, we like to feature people who have contributed to the community. And you have definitely done that through your, through your news blog. Because I mean, you were you were covering local news and Fishers before Current came into play, right about the same time. Oh, was it? Yeah, okay. It, uh, in fact, I didn't get to know the first editor. Jordan was his first name. He's working somewhere in D.C. now. I think he was the first editor, and I had just started showing up for meetings, and I never met him. But I got to know Dan Domsic, who was the second mm-hmm. editor, and I think I've known everyone since then. I've had some. Where I've had podcasts, some come and go pretty quickly, some stay for a while. And when they stay for a while, like, like yourself, or you, I, I get a chance to sit down and, and do a podcast. Uh, and I, as I said, I, I've gotten to know most of them. And, and one co- conversation I have had with every editor of Current and Fishers, and just for people who don't know, it is uh, been a weekly publication for over 10 years. I haven't looked 12, 13 years. It's been around for a, a while now. It's been more than 10 years. For yes, sure. yeah. I, I know it's yeah. over 10. I'm, yeah. I'm in my 13th year, and so I know you probably are a little bit older than that as a publication. Uh, but I, I, one thing I always talk to the editors about, because you, and when you have a weekly publication, you know, I know you, I don't know what it is. Not the deadlines used to be Wednesday or Thursday for this paper that came out the following Tuesday. I assume it's something close to that now. It's Tuesday. Oh, it's Tuesday. It's a so whole it's even week. so you it's yeah. pushed even for, so you got a whole week ahead of time. When yeah, you pr- I am pretty much in. always confused about what day it is because <laughs> because my deadline is so so odd. Well, it used to be on Wednesday or Thursday, so they've clearly changed. Well, I guess you know production can, can. I just find it interesting. The Indianapolis Star, you know. Uh, I used to always love reading the print edition and the sports events that happened the night before. That's a thing of the past. Mm. You can look at it online, but the print edition, if it didn't happen like by mid-afternoon, you're not going to see it in the next day's paper. And that's just – but it's funny. All all the national sports are in there. 
on the print edition if it's there, but but not the local sports. Hmm. I thought, that, and that's something that Gannett's kind of done. I tend uh, they, to skip over the sports section. So. But see, that's where you and I are different. Yeah. That's I'm sure there are <laughs> parts I don't read that you do, and <laughs> vice versa. But when, I, one thing I always was fascinated by when you have a weekly publication like that, there's always editorial decisions. There are editorial decisions that need to be made. I know your inbox is very busy. People are pitching stories to you all the time. I did not pitch a story to you. God bless you. You came to me. <laughs> but there are a lot of people who are pitching stories to you. How do you sort through them and decide this belongs in a cover, this belongs in the paper, and this I'm probably not going to deal with? Hmm. Well, that's actually a really good question that I don't necessarily have an answer to because a lot of it is instinctual or winging it or I actually need a story this week, so anything I'll do. <laughs> so, <laughs> which that was not you. <laughs> well, the first time I was ever in – uh, current was like in 2012, and I got to be friends with Dan Domzik, and he was desperate for a local story, <laughs> and his deadline was coming. He was, can I please talk to you? So I think he did about a 300-word story on me or something. But uh, So yeah, I, I, there are probably times when you're thinking, maybe I can grab this story here to fill that hole here, right. that I, I've got some local hole I've got. To, so I think what That's I'm hearing you say, and, and I think this is true of a lot of editors with whom I've spoken and news directors and assignment editors, people who do that kind of work, how do you decide what stories you want to go out and cover? It is, it's, it's kind of an instinctual thing once you have been in journalism for a while. It's, there really is not a, a, a written guideline like you have the uh, the W's, you know. Mm -hmm. You have that, you know, where, what, you have all that. But when it comes to, okay, what's a story and what is not, I think part of it is is knowing what is news and what is not, which you learn over time. The other one is what is, does a local community really want to mm -hmm. know? What mm -hmm. what do they want to know? And, and that, since you've been here for a year, do you think you have a better feel for that now than you had a year ago? To a certain degree, some of it um, is just uh, no matter where you are, news is news. So a lot of um, a lot of the stories, you just know, okay, that's news. I need to cover that. Um, as far as what the community is interested in, um, I've been a small town reporter forever. That's my only career path. And so small town news tends to be about people. And that's what the community wants to hear about. So whether it's in um, Montpelier, Ohio, or Ketchikan, Alaska, or Fishers, Indiana, the community wants to read stories about people, about their community members, their friends and neighbors. And so that is what I tend to try and focus on for my feature stories especially. Yeah, I know I worked for a man on the radio station in Martinsville, Indiana. He just passed away a few years ago. And, and he would always say, names are news. You know, yes. and especially in a town as small as Martinsville, certainly that was the case. When I moved to Fishers, I'll talk more about this later. I mean, we were a small town. We're not really a small town anymore. Not as much, but uh, the news is still small town news. You know, what did the city council do? What did the you know plan commission do? Um, what did what's what's going on with Joe's house down the street? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that one comes up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you ever? You ever? I'm sure you do. Yeah, I'm sure you read next door. Uh, I so I live in – I actually live in Indy. Okay. So my next door is my, my Indy neighborhood. Oh, so, my goodness. Yeah, I, it's I, more I, about packages getting stolen from porches than anything I was about else. to say that's the big one. <laughs> yeah. Then 
I saw a car drive down my street that I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. You know, something like that. I mean, some of them are. And I have picked up a few stories off next door. And mm-hmm. I, I read it with <laughs> grown a lot. But every now and then, I you know, you get a lead on a story. And that's, that's a re- But next door is a whole <laughs> different uh, dynamic, I yes, think. Yes, it is. Um, you had, had I was out of town for a long planned vacation when the media were, were invited to the city hall arts center, which is under construction. So I missed that. Mm-hmm. But you uh, had a chance to go on that tour. I think you put it on the cover, if I yes, recall correctly. Yep. Yep. And uh, it was uh, so I couldn't make it, but you did, and a lot of other media did. Uh, what should people know about the new city hall arts center? It's supposed to be opening in May. Hmm. I think what's really interesting about that to me is the theater space um, because of how they constructed it. There's, um, you can, it's kind of hard to describe for a audio audience. Well, do the best you can. A, there's a, kind of a, a sunken pit in the middle um, that when the, the, stadium seating is pulled out from the wall, it kind of descends into that sunken pit. And then it's almost like, and then up above on the other side of the sunken pit, but up is where the seat, the, uh, the, the city council, for example, would Mm -hmm. be, or where a theater performance would be or something along those lines. So it's, it's kind of interesting how they um, adjusted that space to be able to have that tiered seating, um, with that sunken pit, but then they can pull a cover over the sunken pit and have the entire floor be flat and open so they can have tables out if they wanted to have a oh. banquet or something like that. So they made it into this multifunctional um, space, which I think is uh, a really good idea uh, when space is limited. Arts people around here have been lobbying for a long time for an indoor venue for entertainment, mm-hmm. which we have on a really nice amphitheater for when the weather is nice. But what do you do the rest of the year? Right, so there right. is – I mean, it's not a huge facility. It's certainly not like Carmel's, but it's it's something that meet, fit, meets our needs. And I'm curious as to what bookings are going to go into that, what kind of uh, – Events will be held in in that particular. Of course, the big thing for us is: will they have a table for us to sit at for the city council meeting? You would hope so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, when, I have to tell you, uh, when I go to school board meetings, I had to lobby to get a table. I remember Rachel Fredette, who was with the Star, he, she's left there now, but you know she was very impressed that I was able to lobby to get us a table so we could write during the school board meetings. So sometimes the little things mean a lot. Sure. Sure. So, um, the story about City Hall is interesting because I moved to Fishers in 1991, and we were a town. The town hall was that building, which is now – I think it's a, it used to be an art gallery on the other side of 116th Street. Just a little bitty – because I had to go to the town hall for some reason. Hmm. And it was this tiny <laughs> – Really, a house what was once a house that was being used as the town hall became this art gallery later. But that was when the town hall, which later became city hall, was under construction. So we had that as the town hall, later city hall. And as you well know, by this time, it uh, began it almost immediately began to sink into the ground. Now we have to remember that we have water tables underneath downtown Fishers. And uh, I remember uh, getting a tour when uh, there was construction of that underground tunnel for the trail underneath 116th Street. Uh, 
and they were showing me all the water that was being pumped out so they could keep that area dry. Hmm. The other part of the old town later city hall that I found interesting, and the mayor told me this, that they, they didn't – they being the town council at the time in 1990 or 91, around that time, really didn't think that building was going to be used very long. That building was built with wood. Hmm. Most buildings that are public buildings of that size, private or public buildings, are built with steel infrastructure. No, the whole thing was built with wood. And what I always found interesting is, I mean, in, Mayor Fadness had always he didn't he always said this publicly and to me that having a new city hall was not something he really took as a that's what I put it as a priority for him. I mean, they did everything they could to avoid it. I mean, there would all these engineers came in, but the interesting thing is there would actually be the lower levels of that city hall, which would start to move one way or the other, like it would slant. And the a department that got the worst of it was, of all things, the engineering department because they couldn't figure out how how to how to fix it, and they had people in there trying to get it fixed. And I remember my future son-in-law, now son-in-law, worked for – the city one summer and said, do you know City Hall's really sinking? It's really bad. And I, it took a while before everybody got together and said, you know, we're spending so much money just to keep this thing upright and to pump the water out and dealing with the crises. It's time to start over again. And that's when the decision was made to make it an arts center and a city hall because there had been a lot of lobbying to get an arts center in Fishers. Uh, so it's I, th that whole story about how it got done. I do remember the first meeting that was held when this came up. The mayor said, you know, this is not something I wanted to do. It's not something I ran on. Not something I really thought would be a priority. But if we don't do if we don't do this, the city is, is going to be spending gigantic amounts of money into a building that is going to continue to need that money. So that's why this new – but I've seen the renderings. I'm seeing the – and if you drive by – and I would like to get your – you've been inside. I have not since you know, recently. But I think the, the building is really beginning to take shape now. People kind of conceive what it's going to look like when it's done. Yeah, it's a, it's a really nice building. And um, I particularly liked when – I. I was interested in the city hall offices as much as the art center. Um, that was still kind of under construction, and it's just a, at this for the most part, um, just a big empty space because it's a bunch of gallery space. So once the art goes in, that'll be a much more interesting space. Um, but the city offices, I could really envision kind of how things were going to be, and there were tons of windows. And that particular day was kind of a nice day, so you got a decent amount of light coming in, and um, so it was it was really a pleasant space. And it did look like it would be a good workable space as well. Um, and hearing the the background is interesting. All I could do was really Google because I haven't been here long enough to know all of the background. And that has that is a little bit challenging sometimes not mm. having that that history. Um, but luckily, I have. Uh, Google and people like you, I can talk to. Well, there's lots so. of people around town other than myself who yes. know that story, and yes. it. Uh, I can tell. Well, the, the the town hall. Is, a, is an interesting story, just just to begin with. When somebody told me it was the infrastructure was made with wood, I just I couldn't believe it. But you know, again, the town council at that time thought, oh, they'll replace that. Well, we ended up having it so for they, quite a while. They intended on replacing it when they that built was the it? story I heard. Interesting. Now, I have never talked to Walt Kelly. Is still around town. Walt Kelly is was a long time 
member of the town council, became town council president for a long period of time. If I ever had a chance to meet, he ran for mayor. That's the last time I saw him and lost. But I do re- uh, remember having some conversations with him. He would probably be the best source to get that history, but I haven't seen him around town for a while. Uh, he was town council president for 10 years and then had to step down because he was part of an accounting firm and he became a, uh, the senior partner. He, he got he got a big promotion and the firm said, you can be on the town council, you can do this, but you can't do both. Which mm. do you want to do? <laughs> so he chose that. And once he retired, that's when we had our first mayoral election. Mm. And the mayoral election was strange too because – the state legislature passed a strange law. I still haven't been able to figure out who slipped this into a bill. But normally you would have uh, you have city elections, you know, like the year before you have a presidential election. Well, after the referendum in 2012 was passed to make Fishers a second-class city, and people ask about this, why do we have to be – the only first-class city in, in Indiana is Indianapolis, okay? So we're – second-class city, you know, that doesn't mean you're – and second tier, it just means it's a legal, you know, de- denotation, if you will. But uh, when that happened in 2012, the question was, okay, when are we going to have a mayor and a city council? We thought it was going to be 2015. That was the next scheduled city election. Somebody slipped something into a uh, into a state statute, and I remember it was Dan Domzik who was. Uh, uh, Current Fisher's editor and myself and, and a, a highly placed official walked in after a meeting was over. It's just the three of us in the room. He said, you know, we're going to have an election next year. <laughs> we said, really? So we checked into it. And uh, t- turns out Dan got the story first. I let him have the story. He was doing it for a living. I'm doing So he got a chance to, to break that story. And it was an important one because we had – what ended up happening is we had an election in 2014 for a one – year term. Mm -hmm. Then you came in for the four-year terms of the next. So you had two elections, basically two years for a city, which is very rare. Is that for any city that becomes? Just for Fishers at that time. That's very weird. That was very weird because the way that statute was written, it couldn't have applied to anybody. But it didn't say Fishers, but you know how laws are are written. It's written in such a way where it wouldn't apply to anybody but Fishers in that situation. That's how I recall it. Now, if Mm -hmm. I got something wrong, somebody will correct me. Yes, they will. (laughs) And, you know, I'm getting older. I don't have a perfect memory anymore. Uh, Let me ask you about uh, some of the stories you've written because I very much enjoyed your cover story about Freedom Kolb. Mm -hmm. And I got to know Freedom when she was the executive director of the Hamilton Southeastern Schools Foundation. And she did a great job raising money and and, uh, and just did an overall great job running that organization before she went uh, to the Milk Bank where she is now. And I have had a chance to talk to her a few times since she left, and and uh, what they do is really important work. Uh, how did you, how were you steered toward freedom as a story? So I actually got a news release from the organization that she's taking leadership classes or leadership training from, um, saying basically, hey, here's somebody from your community who's taking leadership training with us, and I was like the milk bank what the heck is that and so i i was like well other people need to know about this so i decided to do a story about the milk bank i did mention the organization in the story to give them a little credit for steering me in the right direction but um, yeah, and she's had, she had an extensive uh, 
line of experience with nonprofits and so forth before she came to Fishers and then before she went to Milk Bank. But they do some very important work. Yeah, and it was uh, fascinating. I really had never – I had no idea. So um, learning all about that is – and that's one of the really fun things about journalism is you get to learn stuff all the time. I learn something new pretty much every day. And that's what drew me – to journalism. Actually, I began a radio programming radio stations, programming music, and then I l- accidentally ended up doing talk shows, which brought, then I ended up in journalism. It was kind of a slow walk mm-hmm. <laughs> making that bridge from one to the other. But when it came to radio, I did almost everything at some point, sports, programming, but news is really where I ended up. Uh, another story that I saw you put on your cover, the makerspace at Hub & Spoke. I had a chance to... Uh, uh, do the, I can't recall what they call it, but it's it's um, a community program for people who want to know more about the HSC schools. Mm-hmm. It's several weeks, and uh, I ended up being selected for that, loved it. And one of the sessions was at that makerspace where there's some students who go in there, but it's, I think it's a park and rec uh, is, program, yeah. as I recall. But that's they have you know, 3D printers in there. They've got specialized equipment in there. Those students and others who are using that are getting uh, quite a bit of training and, and some cutting-edge equipment. And, and you uh, highlighted that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I just um, – part of my decision-making for stories is what interests me, which is a little bit selfish maybe. But I figure if I don't know about something and I am – interested in learning more then I am probably not the only one so that's why I that's part of the decision making process um, but yeah that was just fascinating I got to meet and talk to some fun people um, there's one older gentleman who right now I forget his name who was coming in um, and I guess he just comes every single morning it's mm-hmm. part of his morning routine he's older he's retired it's what he does he goes there and he does wood projects and Plays and, around with wood all day and then any, goes home. <laughs> anybody who's older and retired is, it identifies with me for sure. <laughs> uh, coming up, and Hamilton County Fishers is right in the middle of this, the solar eclipse. Yes. I talked to somebody when, when I got back from Florida in January for that trip where I missed the, the, the tour of the City Hall Arts Center. But uh, when I got back, I started talking to people around town. Now, the as I recall – the if you look at the entire population of Hamilton County, I think it's under four hundred thousand. It's still a lot of people. I got an estimate that the, the law enforcement, all the people who do the planning for Hamilton County, they are expecting two million people to show up for this solar eclipse. My first thought is, better buy all my groceries. Better make sure I have plenty of gas in my car and don't plan to go anywhere yeah. when that's – because I've talked to people. I talked to somebody. I know, when I wrote a story about that, I got a comment from somebody who said, well, you know, the last eclipse was about 2017. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in Kentucky was in that path. Mm-hmm. They said the day of the eclipse, once it was over, there was total gridlock in the whole town. So we – you know – being prepared, and the law enforcement's got to be prepared to direct the traffic, and everybody involved in infrastructure's got to be involved. What are you hearing about this uh, plan to deal with the solar eclipse? Um, that's that's pretty much it, that there's going to be a lot of people, and those of us who live here in this area need to plan ahead, and, uh, and yeah, traffic gridlock. Um, so I talked to somebody who went to see the eclipse in Kentucky 
um, in 2017, and he said he he actually waited several hours before trying to leave the place where he had observed the eclipse, and uh, it was still a nine-hour gridlock. Mm. Um, and that was not just on the main roads, that was also on the side roads, because everybody on the main roads was like, oh, well, we'll just take the side roads instead. So everything was completely locked down for nine hours. And I I have crowd anxiety, so Ooh. I am oh. not going anywhere that day. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that whole weekend. So if you want any pictures, you're going to send a photographer or I uh, whatever? Will do, I will do all kinds. <laughs> I've done stories um, leading up to the eclipse. I am not going to do any stories about the day of. Just get I've your, already uh, warned my, my superiors that I'm your, not going anywhere. Get your superiors to get you a drone. There you go. And just take pictures from the drone. I mean, they go. probably won't do it, but it's an <laughs> no, idea. No. <laughs> I don't know. I I, uh, I think that's going to... Here's a little tidbit, that, and I'm a former tax law specialist when I worked for the government, that you could rent your house out 15 days during the year and not have to pay tax on the income. Oh, interesting. You know, and that's been in there since the 50s. You know who got that provision into the tax law? The people who lived in Pasadena, California, because they rented their houses out for the Rose Bowl. Hmm. And they could take – and some of those people stayed for a week or two. So they got it's, – it's been in the law for ages. So you could rent your place out for a few days, take the money in – and that is not taxable income to you. You heard it here first. Interesting. So well, I, think I did. People are, I did people are going to do that. I made a general offer to friends from out of town for my guest room. So far, no takers, mostly oh. because there is approximately a forty percent chance of clear skies that day. Exactly. So, so if, if there's if, if it's we're a cl- actually able to see the eclipse, we're, it's we're, we'll be very lucky. Last time we had an eclipse which wasn't, we were not in the main path, but you could still see it, was the, the clouds were in and out. Yeah. And we had a big party, I think, at the amphitheater that year. And it was like, okay, <laughs> not a really big deal. So you're exactly right. The conditions are, are also going to, to have well, an impact the on the time that. of year. I mean, you just, mm-hmm. there's not much you can do about it. Yeah, it's a early April, so you'd think mm-hmm. it'd be a warm day, but heck, you never know. I've seen ice storms hit in April. I hate to say that, folks. You know, maybe I should not even say that. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. Yeah, I'll take that back. Thank you. During the time that uh, you've covered fishers, I've kind of touched on this a little bit. Talk more. Since you've been here for a year, what have you learned about fishers, the local community? Hmm. Well, um, I mean, most of it is just uh, getting familiar with the community and getting the background that, you know, coming in cold, you just don't have. So um, there's just been a lot of of learning. And um, quite a bit of that is just the history. And it's been, I do love doing stories about history. And so talking to historians um, about how Fishers got started, and then some of the Less savory history stories. Oh my They're so fun. So well, the, I thoroughly enjoy those kind of stories. I'm sure you've seen the story about that because uh, Fishers was a swamp, and most of the buildings, like in the late part of the 19th century, were on stilts. I mean, they oh, had to okay. be on stilts. And well, that's were, from the where the mud sock name comes. Correct. From. Mud yeah. sock comes yep. from getting mud on your socks. That's exactly what yeah. happened. But there was a, it was it had a Fisher's had a reputation as being a pretty rough and tumble town, and I do remember there was a murder in one of the bars that ended up in the New York Times. Was that the, the that was the Battle of Mudsock? <laughs> that was right? the Battle of Mudsock. Yep. Yes. Yep. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen. I was there. I don't know if you were here at the time or not, but. 
outside the Fall Creek Township building, right there on Brook School Road, uh, there's now a, an Indiana historical marker because we had body thieves in Fishers. And you've heard this story, too. I did a story about that. And, of course, <laughs> that's what actually led to the state agency, which <laughs> governs uh, all of that because it, it only happened once – this happened in Fishers, and people were snatching bodies and selling them. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, maybe we need some government <laughs> a rule rulings this. about this thing. Yeah, I, I moved here, and I mentioned this in 1991. My wife, Jane, had just built a house here before we started eating seriously. So the 1990 census of Fishers was just over 7,500. Mm -hmm. Think about that. That was, a, I mean, if I wanted to take my kids to Dairy Queen, I had to go to Noblesville. You know, we didn't have that many restaurants. I mean, uh, we had um, a couple and one or two that we frequented, but we usually had to go out of town uh, to have a restaurant. Well, that has changed big time. So now in 1990, of course, that was 7,500. In 2020, we were just shy of 100,000. The estimates I'm getting from people in the city range anywhere from 102,000 to 105,000 as of this moment. So we have we are a pretty big suburb of Indianapolis. That's significant now. growth in a fairly short amount of time. Well, here's the thing that always struck me: the fact that the school system was able to keep up. Because a, a, a lot of families moved to Fisher, and they still are, by the way, but a lot of families were moving to Fishers in the 90s and early 2000s. And how th there were two things that were going on. Number one, the school system had to keep building buildings mm. to accommodate these, these, this influx of families and kids. The second part of that is that – and this is – I think people miss this – that the HSE schools has been able to maintain a pretty high level – of test scores and just reputation for being an academically good uh, school system, even as that huge amount of growth happened, have to give a lot of credit to some of the administrators and teachers and just the building principals during that time who kept the quality going at a time when you have that massive growth. That is very hard to manage both of those things. So um, I don't know. I When you look at the massive growth of, of Fishers, what uh, – You've looked at the history. You've written about the history a little bit. Uh, uh, tell me what your impression is, because I, I, yeah, I lived it from ninety one from ninety one to, to today. But just talking to the people who know the history, and I've talked to some of those folks too who go back further than I do, uh, is that uh, the growth came with some pain. And uh, how should I put this? There's a group of people in Fishers that are still not happy with the growth. You've talked to them. I'm sure they talk to me all the time. There's not as many of them around as there used to be. Some have moved out, which is fine. But, you know, Scott Fadness has always had this philosophy when I bring this up to him. He said, if you're a city, you're either moving forward or backward. Hmm. There's really no way. If, you, if you're staying where you are, you really are moving backward. What are you going to do? And he's a, as you have seen, he's a he's a big believer in moving forward and not moving backward. So there are still people in this town who say, you know, we've lost that feel of old fishers. You know, that's probably true. And I'm saying that's all a bad thing. I I was here with the old fishers and understand what that is. But I think the new fishers has a lot to offer as well. And I I, I really can't complain. But I'm curious what your perception is talking to people, seeing what you've seen over the past year about this this rapid growth uh, of what used to be a little town as a big city. Sure, sure. Um, so, uh, I mean, I came in 
to I, I never saw Fishers when it was small. So I used to live in Bloomington. So I we didn't really I drove through Indianapolis <laughs> on my way to Ohio to visit family. So I never really stopped in Fishers. So I wasn't a I did not have direct knowledge of what it was like before. Um, so I've only seen it as this um, second class city. But even now it's growing and I have heard grumbling from people who, you know, oh, tear down old fissures and build new and, you know, all the new buildings just look the same and blah, blah, blah. So I have heard some of the grumblings, but at the same time, I kind of see the mayor's point, um, you know, <laughs> in the whole metropolitan area is growing. It's not just Fishers. So more and more people are coming in. And if uh, if Fishers wants to continue attracting these businesses that keep the economy going and allow to pay for various things, then they probably, this is probably the way to go. So, yes, and, and that's, that's a huge part of it. I mean, there is a lot of public services that are going on in Fishers and that um, coming from a economically stagnant town in Alaska, I am very impressed by. Mm -hmm. So that's that's another thing that I've observed. Interesting. That is, you saw the contrast pretty clearly. I would oh yeah. Think. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a much more affluent area than than where I was. I mean, yeah, the cruise ships come in and bring a lot of money, but a lot of that money stays with the cruise ships mm -hmm. and doesn't necessarily trickle into the town. Sure. So and um, so were there uh, shops where people could buy things, or did they do? Yes, did they but buy a lot of much? a lot of those shops are owned by people who oh, um, don't necessarily live in the town, and they just come in for the cruise season, and so. Um, so this, not a whole lot of the millions of dollars that the cruise industry generates stays in the local community. So the local community, there was there was some constant economic challenges for it. And I come here and I see, you know, these great parks and these new buildings going up. And you got Ikea. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> Can I tell you a funny story? Is uh, I used to do a movie podcast with a friend of mine who's now on the city council and in Carmel, mm -hmm. Adam Austin. And I still talk to Adam now and then, but we weekly did this movie podcast. We would do it from the restaurant he and his parents owned in downtown Carmel, which they've since sold. But the reason I bring this up is that I would see people from Carmel all the time. And I said, well, you people in Carmel, you got these big office buildings, you know, all, all, all along Meridian Street, along 31. I mean, you... I mean, you, you really have a lot to brag about. And he would look at me and say, yeah, but you got, but Ikea. You got Ikea. You knew what I was going to say. And they were furious about that. That was one – that was a really interesting time because they kept that under wraps. I was at a school board meeting and a member of the school board let it out oh. that there's going to be a big announcement tomorrow about a big – he didn't say the name. We all looked at each other and said, got to be Ikea. So I'm on the – I get home at like 10, 11 o'clock. I'm on the phone trying to – finally, I think they realized what was going on. They, they sent out the news release that mm. they were going to announce <laughs> Ikea coming. They, uh, they have a first-class public relations. They took over the public relations. They took over City Hall and completely set up the whole thing. It's like, okay, these people have done this before and they know exactly <laughs> what they're doing, which should not surprise you. Before we go, I want to ask you about Lawrence, because you cover Lawrence. you got Current and Lawrence. Yep. And Lawrence is, and my mother, who just passed away last year, lived there. My parents lived there for a long time. Uh, so I'm very familiar with, with Lawrence. And, and, and uh, it, it became a different place when the when the military base closed for Benjamin Harrison. But they still had that huge building, which was the Army Finance Center, and later became a GSA building, which is just government agencies, but it's a big building. And the interesting thing about that was that 
the Defense Department was ready to tear that building down. Hmm. And the only reason they didn't is because they realized that the building was built in the 50s. It had asbestos all through it. It was actually going to cost more to tear it down than to remodel it and just use it as an office building. And, yeah, and the military all the abatement. Yep. They call it DFAS now, but it's it's mostly uh, mostly good, uh, defense, but there are some other agencies in there. So Lawrence is a place that has changed a lot over the years. And they had a very interesting mayoral election, too. Uh, being our neighbors to the south, uh, uh, your impression on the first year of covering Lawrence. Well, um, so the biggest thing with covering Fishers and Lawrence is it's so different politically. <laughs> it's just it's polar opposites when it comes to the politics, which is just fascinating for for me as kind of a middle of the road uh, journalist person who doesn't take sides on anything whenever possible. Um, so uh, that's that's been very interesting to me. And um, yeah, the mayoral elections that actually kind of covering the council and talking to individuals that kind of went the way I thought. It was going to. So I wasn't really surprised by that. Well, that interesting dynamic in Lawrence where the uh, the mayor was a Republican, the council was controlled by Democrats, and they were suing each other <laughs> there yeah. toward the end. Yeah. Uh, finally got the thing Lawrence settled. Lawrence really kept me busy. I was going to say there's <laughs> always news. few months, yeah. Uh, yeah. I suspect <laughs> things may settle down a little bit, but, you know, there's always news in a, in a place like Lawrence. But uh, they're going through the same kind of demographic changes other parts of the central Indian area going through but i just i'm curious what your thoughts were and i thought it might be something along those lines we're actually over time i just we've talked longer than i do in most podcasts <laughs> but um enjoy talking to you anything you want to add before i i wrap this up no i don't think so i um really enjoyed doing this and uh, appreciate uh, the invitation well who knows if more news happens maybe we'll do this again sure. sometime in the future it's a great and i can tell you like talking into a microphone something you're well, very familiar you know, with i kind of miss it <laughs> Well, it's good. always been fun. But we'll give you that occasional opportunity to talk into a microphone again. Sounds like a plan. Layla Carey is the editor of Current and Fishers, also the Current and Lawrence, a weekly publication. Layla, thanks so much. Really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you.